My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as podcast producer is Neil Thibodeau. Hello, Pilar. Hello, Neil. Congratulations. This It is confirmed. You are hopping on a plane. You're going to your gig. You are directing a documentary. Want to tell everybody a little bit about what it's about? We'll give them the brief version. We, we hinted at it last week, but yeah. uh, October 4th, I'll be flying out to Ohio. I'll be shadowing a director who is um, directing a, a movie for, for the first time and shooting essentially you know, an extended EPK of this guy and see how he does as a director. And uh, looks like Nick Cage and Faye Dunaway and... Uh, it uh, looks like Gina Gershon will be in it as well. And oh. we just, uh, there's an article in Deadline this last week. So I was like, oh, is it, this looks like it's actually happening. Wow. All right. And, and I know, I have a feeling when you come back, you're not actually going to be able to tell us anything. <laughs> not until you see the movie. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Do you have, is it just you? Are you bringing a crew? Will you I am, using a crew I, that's I am there? my crew. The budget that we have for the for the documentary, um, I'm shooting it. I'm editing it. Um, I'm uh, recording sound. <laughs> you know, hopefully the, the set the set will be lit pretty well. Then I won't have to worry about lighting. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you've got a whole crew that's setting up for you with yeah, all that. I'll just use that. <laughs> wow, Neil. Okay. All right. Good luck. Thank you. Um, Neil has wonderfully even brought our guest today. You know, he, you really are a one-man band. You totally are. I have a lot of, ha- a lot of hats. Um, he happens to be related to our guest, and it's Lara Hoffs. Is that right? Hafes. Hafes. So maybe it's I should have figured this out close like, beforehand. Enough, close enough. And I everybody like, it, gets it wrong. Is it Lara or is it Lara? And I'm Thibodeau. Lara. And, and it's Thibodeau. <laughs> no, it's, it's no, Silent H. Shut <laughs> up. Okay, don't, don't screw me up. All right. Hafes. All right. So, Lara Hafes is an audience development strategist and analyst with over 15 years of experience building audiences around pop culture's hottest media brands, films, gaming communities, documentaries, and more. And she's also Neil Thibodeau's cousin. <laughs> and we, we were talking about the fact that you guys like are all overachievers in your family. Is this right? There's a lot of them. <laughs> Doctors, lawyers. A lot of smart people. Engineers. <laughs> And then I think, what have I done with my life? <laughs> so when you have reunions, like, is it a whole bunch of really, really smart people who can't, like, who, who don't know how to make the potato salad? Like, nobody can actually do anything practical. Are you about your dad with the, uh, the dishwasher, with the laundry? Uh, well, um, her dad, who is uh, a genius, uh-huh. uh, a, med- a medical genius, he uh, <laughs> added liquid soap to the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> and filled the kitchen with bubbles. It's like a, like an I love Lucy episode. <laughs> it really totally. Was. Like, ah, totally. I totally. get out of here and cure liver cancer. Do something I can really do. Okay. 
Well, let me tell you more about, about Lara because she is definitely an expert in her field. Um, throughout her career, Lara has worked for every major studio and contributed to well over 100 entertainment and brand marketing campaigns. She's been a producer of creative content, interactive media, social media, and transmedia, and has provided strategic insights into the campaigns of many entertainment and brand properties. She spent five years as brand manager and transmedia producer of the Twilight Saga franchise. (laughs) And her experience with the Twilight fandom was where her love affair with fandoms and audiences took root. So I would love to begin there because, you know, can I just tell you? No, I am not personally a fan. I know I'm supposed to be. I know as my my age and my gender. But guess who is? Your daughter? No. Your husband? Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes, Pat Francis. Not only was he such a fan that I think it was like number three or whatever, he went <laughs> to like our local AMC at like the 10 a.m. show on a, oh when it gosh. opened up. And it was just him <laughs> and a bunch of like, you know, middle-aged women and, and their daughters who were p- playing hooky that day. Just uh, He was literally the only dude I in love the that. audience. And yeah. that's actually like what a great story because it's it, you constantly I was constantly amazed at the type of people who were attracted to Twilight. It was not a um, easily categorized uh, fan base. Oh, that's that's yeah. interesting because I think that there might be a little bit of a stereotype associated mm-hmm. with a, with for a sure. kind of fan for for Twilight screaming girls, right, <laughs> right, right at the time, mm-hmm. and they're screaming mothers, right? Because yes. weren't, weren't there screaming mothers all yeah. hot for the? Oh yeah, you know, the. What it ended up being is age eight to eighty females, mm-hmm. which is that in itself is like a crazy demographic, right? That's basically all females. Mm-hmm. Um, but the males were also there for sure, um, and uh, represented kind of scatteredly, or or, or scatteredly, or only uh, only only Pat Francis. I will have uh, to say they were scattered, <laughs> <laughs> but they were there. How do I stay married to this guy? How you know? I think a lot of them were there under the guise of being like, I'm going to go to this with my my girlfriend, but I think they really were fans, <laughs> and they just weren't admitting it. Your husband has the, the courage. He does. To he's, admit it. Uh, he's definitely confident in his manhood. <laughs> there you are. Um, well, tell me a little bit about what your job was over those five years, right. because when we say, um, you know, brand manager and transmedia producer, mm-hmm. but you've got something that's fictional content that we just we know as a movie. Mm-hmm. So, what does someone like you do, and and how does it branch off? And mm-hmm. and uh, I'm also curious why people who would be listening who are writers and directors should know about this yeah. stuff. Well, um, just a little background too with Twilight. You know, when it, they were, when we started that, you know, my first day was at a marketing meeting with like 10 people around a table. You know, the idea was that it was going to be a small independent film with an independent studio and that they were unaware of the power of that fan base and how that fan base and the property itself would explode. Um, so when it exploded, what we realized we had on our hands was something way bigger than us at that point in time. So the, the job expanded as well. And we became, um, uh, you know, I have to say such a great team, a marketing team that we, to work with and, um, throughout all the, um, the films, as we grew, um, worked to try to um, work with the fans. I think that was one of the, the biggest things that I ended up, my role was, was taking the knowledge that we had of the fans and how to help um, uh, guide that into what 
what would end up being the campaign. Though I, I will not take sole responsibility for that at all because it was a group effort. And Nancy Kirkpatrick was the head of marketing and was amazing at being like a um, a real uh, really embracing the fans and became a, a real person to help cultivate the fandom. So what happened on that property was that the fans really um, became a key part of the growth of that fandom, of the property. And by embracing them um, and involving them and bringing them into the process, it made it grow even further. And five years before, you couldn't say that it would have been that successful in that, in that light because the media landscape was different. At the time that Twilight hit the mainstream, it was right as Twitter and Facebook were hitting the mainstream. And it, you know, we had Twitter and Facebook were growing slowly, and then it just took off at one point in the mainstream. And at that same time that it took off and hit the mainstream was right as Twilight was coming out with the first film. So you have this fan base that was plugged into digital media, and they were already on MySpace, they were already in the social media world. And so when we were activating them, it, they helped us. They cultivated the big spark. They helped make it grow into their networks and their networks and their mothers and their grandmothers. And it, it started to grow and grow and grow. And I think it was then that, you know, um, we really smartly um, capitalized on make, building that relationship with them and making sure that, they, that we brought them along for the ride and listened to them and found out what they were loving, what they were hating, what they were concerned with and not necessarily addressing all those issues, because you can't, because there's a lot, everyone has an opinion, um, which is something that's actually becoming more and more apparent now between the producer and fan relationship and the audience relationship, um, which I'd love to talk about because it is really hot right now, but, because um, uh, you can't serve all their needs. Um, but listening to them and growing them and letting them be a part of the growth and, um, and really made that franchise explode in the way that it did and become a cultural phenomenon. Well, why don't you you mentioned you want to say something about the the relationship between them and the producers. So well, like what, what we did mm -hmm. at that time was um, without having you know, it was the first franchise to explode under the social media shifting landscape. And uh, played our cards right, you know, and I really I really attribute that to Nancy Kirkpatrick who led that team. Um, and, and everyone in that team who we all worked really closely to make sure that we were all uh, going across platforms to make sure everything was seamless and tight and, um, and telling the story right. Um, and um, so that happened there, but what's happening now since then is we have, it took a while for Hollywood to realize the role of, of audiences and how strong and important they are right now in the growth of your property. Whether you have a web series, or you have a film, or you have a TV series, the role of the audience, they're much closer than they used to be. They're not an arm's distance away. You can't just pass the film over to be distributed. They're, they're part of the story and the process that you're about to do. So what's happening now is I think people are starting to realize that, but what, but when you listen to your fandom, sometimes your fans aren't happy. And so there's this sense of entitlement that's starting to grow up um, among fans. Like, well, wait. Why aren't, you, why aren't you changing the story to meet our needs? Or why did you kill off that one character that we loved, you know? Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a way that the producers and the storytellers are, need to be accountable to the fans, but not necessarily, mm -hmm. because 
the fans, you can't, and this is the worst example I'm going to yeah. use, but I use it all the time because I haven't figured out a better example, but just like with a kid, you can't let a kid have chocolate at dinner every, you know, for every meal because just because they want it. As a storyteller, you need to keep the story. Right. You need to be the one that um, oversees the story and the story experience for the fans, right? So knowing that like this is what's going to be best for the overall, overall experience of the story over time, and that's what we need to do, so you don't not necessarily have to do everything that they say, but their audiences are getting loud, and they're getting entitled, mm-hmm. and so having to navigate that is becoming harder and harder for producers. I, I would imagine, because I, I, you said in some of your blogs, you know, the audiences can even come in at the development process, you know, toward mm-hmm. toward helping. But I would imagine, I was trying to think of the pros and cons of this. I think there might be a knee-jerk reaction in terms of con for some creators because they might be like, you know, I'm not going to have a mob mentality, you know, tell me what I should do and they'll always want happy endings, etc. But then there's pros in, in, for example, something I saw with... Um, like uh, my daughter's peers, uh, teenage peers, and an approach that, um, you know, if they, if they feel that there isn't a group of people being represented in a TV show, for example, in terms of gender or sexuality or race or ethnicity, they will shout out loud about that. Mm-hmm. And that to me seems like a positive mm-hmm. result mm-hmm. of this. But uh, where, how, how do people find this balancing act and at what point should they start really listening to the audience in a way that could actually help a story so that's where, where I come in that's mm-hmm. where, where what primarily what I do now is I help people basically it's like a um, for storytellers I am a, a matchmaker to some extent and also like mediator mm-hmm. to mediate that relationship right because um, what is happening and what uh, storytellers are haven't been used to in the past and it hasn't been part of the job description is building a relationship, right, with that fandom. And um, so... Uh, and that relationship is so key because while it can be negative, like you mentioned, there's positive sides to that, but there's also another huge positive side is your audience is your ticket to success. They are your ticket to success. They're the, the people who are passionate and love it. You gotta keep nurturing them. You gotta keep being able to have a place where they're happy, or not happy, and um, but content with the experience that you're providing them. And want to keep coming back and want more. I mean, there's exactly. it's, it can't be just like, oh, well, they gave me everything I wanted, so I guess I'm not gonna watch the next movie or the next right. show. Or right. Um, there's a story that I recently heard. I'm not a, sh- a, a fan of the show 100. Mm-hmm. You guys That's actually, I was, I was about I to say that, that by name. That was yeah. exactly the, the show, show I was referring to uh-huh. with my, my friend and, and her, teenage, her teenage peers is yeah. that they rebelled against one specific episode because right. they felt like it had been done so many times. Yes. But I stopped myself from saying it because one of our, one of our guests, who is wonderful, is uh, on the 100 right now. So we'll just play this one lightly. So why don't, why right. don't you, no, why I you say a little it, bit I about... I think what, what it happened. shows mm-hmm. is not a good or bad, mm-hmm. right? Right. Because I think what's happening, and we all have to remember, is that we're all learning this as we go, mm-hmm. right? We're having to figure out how that is. And every storyteller and every audience is going to have a different relationship. So what works for, say, Twilight isn't going to work for the show 100. Mm-hmm. It's a different audience. They have different expectations, and it's a different story experience. So let's just say that no one's wrong or right, but there is um, a learning something for all of us to learn from that was then how do you navigate 
when fans aren't happy with the story, uh, the trajectory of the story. Why did you tell everybody right. a little bit about the specifics of what 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 was the disruption? Yeah, well, you there? can correct me if I'm wrong because I only know uh, a little bit. Um, is that because I don't watch the show? But that, that there was a storyline with a with a lesbian couple who they weren't a couple yet, but they were like kind of teasing the relationship over time. The couple finally gets together, and in that in that same episode, one of the characters gets killed. Hmm. So it's like they finally let that relationship happen, and then it dies. So fans were so excited about, from what I understand, they were really excited about that relationship coming together, and then, and then it killed it. Mm-hmm. So it almost like it's like great they were celebrating it, but then they then the storytellers killed it. Um, so who knows what happened in the writers' room and why that was and what the big picture was? None of us know. But the fact is that the, the fans had a response to it, right? So um, you know, again, and I don't know all all the details, but. To be able to, just like in a relationship, to be able to own up to where we mess up, mm-hmm. I think is a key to say, you guys, you, you know what, you know, we were either wrong or we were, we, we realized that the shift that it had on you guys, we weren't, you know what, I mean, I'm not, see, I don't know if I, I can we, give you we the best example. We were fixing a problem, but maybe fixed it in the, in the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the same time, you also don't want to, um, you know, uh, that fourth wall, right? You don't want them to, you don't want to reveal too much of the secrets and the thought process because you want them just to experience the story too. So it's a real fine line and I don't think it was an easy situation. And again, I don't know what was right, but it happened and mm-hmm. it gives us all a lesson to say, well, how, how would we handle that? You know, how would we? And for me, and the reason I'm, I'm being um, hesitant to even make a, a clear decision because the way I work is I want to go in and get to know the audience. I want to know what they said, what they didn't like. Um, a key part of my process is, uh, um, and the analysis side of things is the key part is going in and getting to know who they are, what they love, what they hate, what they're... How do you do that? Yeah, how do you do that? Because yeah. I think there's this tendency to kind of put certain certain demographics in one box. Yeah. Well, so that's the exciting part for me is that we've, we've, we've been looking at storytelling and the industry of Hollywood from a demographic, you know, the four, four quadrants, right? And... By doing that, we're shooting ourselves in the foot right now. Can you? Um, we mention four quadrants here all the time. Like everybody in the world understands what we're talking about. What, can you be specific about what those traditionally were? Well, you guys have to. We'll, we'll have to talk about it here because I, I want to make sure I get it right. But I think it's male, female, and then there's a age breakup. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what, what they are, but there is that. It's just basically demographics. What you were talking about, looking at both uh, just gender and age. In today's media, along with the fact that the audience has a voice, but they also are talking online. And they are telling us what they like. They're telling us what they love. We can go in and listen to them. And um, there's a lot of data, uh, sources for gathering data to get to find out what other properties they like, to find out psychographics around them, so that we can understand who they are as a whole. And even within that, most fandoms, um, and this is what's fun for me, is most fandoms aren't even have just one type of fan. It breaks down into different types of fans. So within every fan fan group or fan um, audience segment, there's multiple segments within. There's your hardcore fans or there's your kind of, um, you know, you know, temporary fans, like they come and go from the property or, um, and we start to start to get to know who they are, what what it is about them, also about like the culture that's evolving around the subculture of the fandom itself, you know? Um, so that when we're talking to them, whether it be in marketing or whether it be in story, we are like, we know 
who you are. We love that you love what we love too. And so we'll, whether it be a wink in the story to, to something that they like, cause sometimes, you know, within the, the linguistics that arise within fandoms, it's just like the, um, the various phrases and things like, you know, what, what it was for Twilight, you know, Team Edward and Jacob, which mm-hmm. ended up, you know, which is a basic one that ended up being something that was used in some of the marketing stuff. But it can be down to, like, I was working on um, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and got to know that fandom. And mm-hmm. they have different languages and they have this whole um, uh, culture of, um, of uh, you know, quoting lines. Mm-hmm. And so when in, in the culture of them communicating with each other, it was really a lot about the same sort of things of quoting different lines from some of these movies and experiences and integrating it with their own comments. And um, it was real art. And so understanding that, that art that they have and appreciation they have for that linguistic thing within their culture, then we can give winks to that and say, we're not just think, think you're some dominant audience. We know you love this. And we also know that you have your own uh, cultural experience around this that you guys have created yourselves and um, and we're part of that with you um, so that can happen with as we look at how we then communicate and build that relationship and then so when it comes to when there's a problem that emerges right then we can also better um, find the bit way to deal with the problem than when we don't know who the audience is um, because we can have um, uh, it's not um, it's not a one-off situation. It's something that you've cultivated and grown, and they trust you, and you can be like, just trust us, you know? Or, you know, give them some sort of reason that, 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 fits, and under, that fits within their world, you know? So, um, yeah, I can't actually remember what yeah, we were talking about. That I, just kind of went think, off on that. I was that, just so. trying to think, like, how can this really help story, right? Because, I'm again... There might be that knee-jerk thing of, oh, we're catering, right? But I was thinking, based on what you said, you know, like Game of Thrones, the involvement of winter is coming, right? Mm-hmm. So winter is coming became this thing that was set up front. But I, I, I guess it's my belief that they probably didn't realize how much that would become the catchphrase mm-hmm. for that for that series. And it evolved to, you know, winter is coming, winter is here, mm-hmm. you know, and it became, I think, very, they became very self-aware of the fact that people were using that expression yeah. as a tentpole for what was, a, you know, foreboding and when the danger was actually here or when the danger had passed. Mm. And they've, they've been using that, but I don't think they would have done that without that, that response from the audience, mm-hmm. right? So oh, absolutely, I think it's yeah. a little bit like that, right? Absolutely. If by understanding what everybody's catching, they, you can actually involve it in your own stories and maybe mm-hmm. even potentially make your stories better right 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 right. and you know sometimes you'll find as a storyteller that you are going along the way and we can you find that maybe there's one character or one storyline that they really identify with more so than you would have ever thought was like a b story or something you have an opportunity to then like leverage that and, and build it take it somewhere further or just know that it's one that needs to be developed further or at least have closure with or something like that too um did you guys watch Stranger Things? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't yet, but That's I really want good. to. So there's yeah. a character that no, that suddenly everybody wanted to know about. Mm-hmm. It was Barbara. Oh, yeah. Barbara yeah. the best friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Barbara the best friend in Stranger Things is not around that, that much. It's just like the first episode. Yeah, but I would bet you 
that when they do season two and they are going to do season two, that Barbara comes back. I mean, they've, there's like the memes, there's the like people like, uh, you know, fantasizing about like what her life is like. I mean, it's just that she's all over Buzzfeed and, and by fantasizing about what her life is like, do they are they actually creating fan fiction around it? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. So that has to do with Absolutely. a little bit of what, what you're talking about with how storytelling yeah. is changing and and being motivated by fans. They're actually creating stories. Absolutely, they're participants, right? And where in the past, you know, where we have been really tight to be like, oh, this is our property, don't use it. You want to be encouraging people to use it, you know, to encourage people to create create the the fan fiction use the the characters in the story world because they're creating content that just feeds the the phenomenon in any more ways than one um it reminds me of in twilight actually there we um we were limited in our ability to take that story and do more things with it and put it across different platforms or to take any you know um Transmedia itself is taking stories and putting them across platforms, right? Or and or what I see it more as is an experiencing story across platforms, whether it's put there or not, is a choice on the part of the storytellers. But knowing that your audience is now going across platforms means you have an opportunity to go to create the story and different experiences for them. We were limited um, uh, due to Stephanie Meyer; she just didn't want the story at the time, rightfully so to be created by anybody else but her outside of you know um, the film. Um, what happened is that those fans became very hungry for more content, very hungry for more content on these characters that they loved. Fan fiction took off, and most fans were also um, fans and um, connoisseurs of fan fiction. That's how Fifty Shades of Grey came about. Isn't it that so crazy? It was crazy. a piece of fan fiction that rose to the cream of the crop, and, you know, basically, and, and it became what it became. They changed the names and whatnot. But what that shows me is that there was a market for more story. There was a market for wanting to, um, for those fans to be involved in that story world more. There was a limitation on what we were able to give them. So they, someone else created it. This fan wrote this fan fiction, and then she capitalized off of it. She grew a fandom. Once she had a fandom, there was proof that she, there was enough for a book, there's proof there's enough for a movie, you know? So, um, would you say there's like of. this, um, almost seems like there's also kind of a limited window for a project to kind of take advantage of that fan energy. I mean, like you guys were turn they were turning out the movies like at what every, every eight months or a, a year or something like that. It was yeah, like, varied. I mean, how much longer can you sustain that, you know, that kind of audience frenzy? I mean, well, is it what's interesting with that too, is, you know, we look at windows, the, tra the traditional uh, marketing windows for the industry, particularly in, you know, if you look at film and like, you've got your, your film window and you have your home entertainment window and then there's the quiet windows, right? We didn't have to worry about anything in those times, right? Now you have to worry about it because the fans are still there mm. and they still want things. So the time in between like the uh, shows airing, you know, I mean seasons airing or shows airing, what are you doing with the fans? Like where, how are you engaging them both within the story and the larger quote-unquote experience that you're creating as a storyteller, you know? Um, and I think that goes to, uh, I, we had talked a little bit earlier about uh, Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which was a really great example yeah. of that. You know, they had the, the vlog story experience, but they also had a Twitter feed for the characters and um, gave um, people a chance to interact with that story, and it became a larger story experience. 
Another great example in that one was that the sister became such a beloved character. They've now created a whole series. Right now they're creating a series on the sister who's going to have a series, a book, the whole thing that all of Lizzie Bennet Diaries And they've got too. like um they've got like an empire. I mean, they sell oh, clothing, sure. they 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 sell their brand in all sorts of different ways and it was just, you know. Yeah. And that's a perfect example to me of how the landscape had changed and how some brilliant people, um, you know, uh, Bernie Sue and um, Jay Bushman, who came along, created, made, ensured that story started um, being told across platforms. And the experience was a larger story experience. And they, from the ground up, were able to create something that is now a, a huge franchise. Okay. Yeah. Now, you all, all of your expertise with marketing, right, mm-hmm. um, really comes out of your theory about story. Yeah, and you've mentioned that you feel that storytelling has changed mm-hmm. over time, and these are just some examples of, of on a practical level, how mm-hmm. they've changed. Can you give uh, more of an overview yeah. of of how how? Oh, I'd uh, love to. This is what I love to oh, talk good. about. Oh, <laughs> good. Yay. Um, I, uh, you know. And then I was going to mention this a little earlier, too, because I think what people don't understand about what's changed here is, first of all, story ha- storytelling itself hasn't changed. If we look back to when we were telling stories around the campfire or Shakespearean theater, um, story, we come to know who we are as individuals and in community through storytelling. You know, I'm here telling you about me through telling you my stories, you know, um, and it's how we create culture, it's how we create relationships. So storytelling to me is just this core fundamental piece of our human experience from the beginning of time. And it gives us a purpose and reason and a sense of identity to say, like, and when we love a story, to be like, I love, I really relate to that story, it resonates with me, I wanna watch it over and over again, you know? What happened as story has as, as storytelling has evolved is that once you know we had mass media come in, we had radio, TV, film. It started to separate. Prior to that, if you think of Shakespearean theater or campfires, it was very social storytelling. Mm-hmm. Well, now we have um, the technology has emerged to make storytelling social again. So when you say it was social in the old days, people heckling and things and things changing on the spot, or yeah. that, I mean, anyone who goes to the theater now, or anyone who works in the theater as a as a as an actor or an actress or even a director knows that every night's a different experience because of the relationship between the audience and the people on stage. So if you get a laugh one night, maybe maybe you or an unexpected laugh, you change. The, the inflection yeah. of, the, of the line, if not the line itself. Yeah, it could make you shift the, to express the, the character a little bit differently, mm-hmm. right? You know, Or it gives you the energy to, to take it in a different direction or whatever. That's the kind of relationship that um, storytellers today should be having with their audiences. Being able to listen, like we were talking about that listening place and being able to react and you know, move towards it. Because we're going back there. So you know, as I said, once with social media and all this new media, we have people have devices in their hands. There's multiple ways to consume media and to consume story, and there's different ways to be in contact with them. And what's naturally emerging is that we are, whether it be just individuals, like we are telling our stories across platform. Like I, like my my story cocktail is Facebook, LinkedIn, and I have a blog, right? Everyone has their different cocktail of how their what platforms they're using to tell their personal stories online and to express themselves, right? And um, that's how we're getting to know each other. And it's 
and it, as far as, and plus the face-to-face, of course, that adds to it, but storytelling, again, is that, is that key fundamental thing. But then when we talk about then these mass stories being told by professional storytellers, um, that's why there's now a different relationship with audiences because they are a part of that process. And the other key thing about that, and that is true from the beginning of time, is that stories, um, as I mentioned before, are about us expressing and coming to know who we are. So we personally get connected to stories. So when there's a, a property that we love, you know, um, it, it it's a part of an expression of like, wow, we really resonate with it, or we love the feel or the vibe of it, we love the experience of it, and there's something personal about it. So when you talk about being in relationship with your fans and getting to know them, that's why you gotta get to know them, because they are actually personally um, invested in your property, you know? Um, you look at uh, crowdfunding and some of the successful crowdfunding that has come out of um, taking fandoms and leveraging that to, to, to raise money for whether, like Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was raising money for to, to reboot the series. Um, part of the reason that that can happen and they can make $6.3 million in a month is because people personally are identifying with it and they are literally going to invest in it. Like, they're, like, they're like, I'm willing to pay this amount to see another episode of Mystery Science Theater. Exactly. But, in what, but so we're, when, we're like, when we're marketing or um, building an audience around a story property, whether it be a TV or a film these days, we're not asking for their money, right? We're asking them to come and join in the experience. And when they're personally invested, I mean, they're, I, I, they're personally invested. It's about who they are. So, um, one yeah. of your uh, one of your blogs, you were talking about um, the audience, uh, looking at them as audience, not customers. Yeah, yeah. That customers are your audience. I yeah, that's what you said. Um, and that is really because I think that this isn't just for Hollywood. You know, I think that any nowadays any brand um, has audiences available to them. I mean, that relationship that we're talking about between your audience is. Um, I mean, I, I think of the few brands that I'm like personally connected with. It, you know, Trader Joe's. Um, uh, I love Trader Joe's. I know, right? There's always a line. Like, it's a, it's it makes a, me happy. It does. It's the offline experience. I mean, I'm, they're not really the online experience, but actually, you know, I love that I can go and get information from them when I need it. You know, I, I have a crush on every. Traded boy, Joe oh, boy. Okay, yeah. so I'm not alone. Right. Right. Cool. You know, good. you get these like, you know. I'll admit, me too. <laughs> these good-looking young men that are giving you food. I mean, <laughs> awesome. And they're so nice. They're so nice. But you know, I, uh, I think when I when I read customers are now audiences, I think that's a, a much more human approach to marketing on a brand level because what you're saying is stop trying to sell to them and start entertaining them. Yes. Right. Start yes. telling them stories. They will. It'll be a much more enriching experience for everybody if everybody's enjoying your product mm-hmm. rather than being pitched to. Yeah. Right? Old Spice has done a great job of that, right? They created oh, yeah, sure. Old Spice Guy. Right. Brilliant, right? They mm-hmm. were one of the first to really like knock it out of the park. GoPro mm-hmm. has created a whole brand and, you know, a. a uh, entertainment. Yeah, you can see you can GoPro see. movies in action, exactly. and then you know, you go, "How did yeah. they get this?" Oh, it's it's the very yeah. thing that that you're being marketed and don't know it. Um, what's the other one? The energy drink, Red Bull. Red Bull. Yeah, yeah. they're and, doing uh, a great job. And too. Doritos too. I mean, I, I was mm-hmm. I was I was 
last time they had their you know their final competition uh, for the Super Bowl, um, you know. They, I mean, it, it got even too big for them. Like it was mm -hmm. like we're getting you know thousands and thousands <laughs> of submissions, but at the same time, each one of these people is producing a commercial for free, right. free content. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's insane. Free yeah. content. Yeah, and yeah. just to participate, right? Like that's mm -hmm. the people are just doing it just just to have the opportunity to make a Doritos commercial and be a part of the scene. No, I just I I hate I don't want to end on a negative note, but I want to make sure we get this in. Um, I mean, it's a two parter. First of all, what's the difference between what we're talking about and test audiences. Mm -hmm. And the second is how can creatives listen to audiences without, without compromising the integrity mm -hmm. of their work? Um, so they're kind of interrelated, I think. Um, test audiences, I think there's, that's not gonna go away. Um, you know, I, it's one way of getting data. So let's, let's back this up. There's people behind that data and I'm, a, a, a huge believer in that mm -hmm. is is that data is, is a bunch of ones and zeros but you use that data to paint a picture when I do my analysis I do you know I use all the quantitative data to build like a black and white picture of who they are and then I go in and I get the qualitative data and I listen to them and that starts to fill in with the color or I'll do interviews and we'll do you know surveys and that'll help fill it out or test audiences is another means of filling it out right you still want to be able to bring in data so it's still a source of data but it doesn't have to be the only data point, right? Depending on what you're testing. It right? gives you information. It doesn't necessarily say you, it doesn't give you the law, right? What you choose to do with that information is Absolutely. up to Absolutely, and how you, how you interpret it, right? And that's the key too. You know, we're in a place in Hollywood just starting to understand the value of data and its role in the storytelling process. Um, I would say both from a development standpoint as well as a marketing standpoint. And um, the key thing is that you can have as many ones and zeros as you want, or as many you know test screenings and taking in that data. But how do you interpret it to to the people who are behind that data? And um, and that's what I love to do is to be that that person that comes in and says, you know, this is this is what it means. It doesn't just mean you know that males aren't going to go see it on a Friday night. Let's see why aren't males going on a Friday night? You know, like what, like what is the what is the the, the, the cultural piece there <clears throat> around that that can give us an understanding of what the um, what the patterns are and to understand why to understand the why. So, so you know, I'm an independent filmmaker, and I've got mm -hmm. something that is important. I want to share it with the world. At the same time, I do want to make some money off of this <laughs> eventually, right? Mm -hmm. I want the world to see it. So, integrity, integrity, integrity. Mm -hmm. How do I get in touch with the audience but not risk losing my integrity? I, I think you can do both really easily. Um, if you look at the YouTube space, mm -hmm. they're the ones who kind of are teaching us what to do. Because these kids who have been developing um, their channels for years, people kept saying, but they're never making money. They've got millions of subscribers, but they're not making any money, right? And then it was like a year ago, that changed. All of a sudden, they're now actually millionaires. Because with, this, with these audiences that they have, they're for every eyeball, and all of a sudden, the advertisers are realizing money's coming away from TV. It's going into YouTube space. So the advertisers are now collaborating with these <clears throat> creators. What they did right was that they, throughout the time that they were creating, 
they're not only creating content, but they're also creating a relationship with their audience. And so it becomes a, um, a mutual benefit society where they're growing together. And that's what needs to happen in the, the, the larger space. But going back to your question about independent filmmakers, I think the good news and the bad news for independent filmmakers is the good news is in this day and age, you have an opportunity to build an audience around your property. It's going to take a lot of work. And it's not just filmmaking. It's also then doing like what these YouTubers are doing, which is cultivating a relationship with them via social media and in that space where you're giving them content and you're giving them experiences, you're, you're responding to their questions, you're, you're talking back to them. And those kids have worked really, really hard. Um, so it's, it's a little bit more work, um, either that or you hire people to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, um, the bad news is that, that it's now the marketplace is getting noisier, so it's getting harder to do that. Um, uh, but the key is to go by to, to what I've been talking about, which is really getting to know your audience. Because um, when you know your audience, you don't have to market. In fact, no film, no TV show, no web series has to market to everybody. This is a niche audience world now. That's true. There's yeah. there's so many more content platforms, so you don't have to try and please everybody all no. the time. You can please just some of the people some of the time and still have a platform for your for your work. For sure. And what, it, when you know who your audience is, then you can say, okay, well, who are they and where are they? That's mm -hmm. part of the question that you ask, you know? And then it's like, okay, so they're on Facebook? Okay, great. That's awesome. We've got some great targeting uh, ways to target and find them on Facebook to let them know about this particular property or whatnot within that niche. You don't have to market to all of Los Angeles or across the world. You can be very specific about who you want to reach and stuff. So This has been fascinating. So I'm, interesting. I'm really glad that you, you were on the show. Thank you so much. Every time I talk to her, I feel like my mind's being blown a little bit yeah. because I feel like we've thought about... Um, thought about things in such a, in a specific way for so long that when I hear that it's like, oh, wow, it's, I, I, you know, the, the world is a little bit bigger, it feels like. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I want to jump back to something, Neil, you said before, because I think that's one thing I'd love to just encourage your, uh, your audience mm -hmm. is that you think of yourself as a storyteller and you have a different sandbox now. You know, you've got multiple different platforms to play with. It's not, you can be a filmmaker, you can be a TV show showrunner or whatever, but, and that's fine and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're a real storyteller, start to think bigger. Start to think how to create a larger story experience for your audiences and cultivate something that's really creative and exciting and never been done before because there's a lot of opportunity out there and there's only a few people really trying to capitalize on it and there's a where we're going in storytelling is really an exciting time so that's it wonderful thank yeah. you great advice so awesome yeah so you're kind of doing this and we talk about multi-platform storytelling <laughs> it, you, what you're do, about to do is really meta yeah. you're a director mm -hmm. who's filming a director <laughs> who's filming right yeah. so uh so this will be interesting to hear about when you come back we'll call it picture in picture <laughs> do you want people interrupting your own creative process by tweeting you sure um at and t-h-i-b-e-d-e-a-u that's Thibodeau. and it's and the h is the, the h is silent, silent. <laughs> <laughs> And Laura, how about you? Do you like people to get in touch with you? Oh, for sure. Yeah? Yeah, I'm at Laura Hafes, uh, L-A-R-A-H-O-E-F-S. The O-E is like an A. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. 
And is that on Twitter? And that's on Twitter. And then I also have a blog, storydisruptive.com. Storydisruptive.com. Check it out. I checked out some of the blogs before Lyra came on the show and it was, they were so good. There was, they, they really made me think, you know? Right. Um, so thank you. Well, thank and, you for uh, me. I'll tell you, you know, what I've learned about my audience, besides the fact that they're all freaking geniuses, because they are, <laughs> is there's also a huge section of them that listen to this show while working out or walking their dog, which leads me to believe that everybody's getting thin doing the show except me. <laughs> so I was thinking like, you know what? It's like an on-the-page podcast and exercise app. Oh. You know, like we should oh, stop like every see, five minutes are. and be like, okay, now, now some squats. Seven, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I'll be working on that. Oh, I know my right. audience. You know your audience. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank very much. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Neil. Of course. Thank you to my um, in-shape genius audience. And have a good writing week. <laughs>